0: Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Yeah, so I had a really short sermon planned because I was like, we're gonna gonna finish the sermon, we're gonna go out to the valley and we're gonna have a picnic, but now I'll I'll make it like 45 minutes. So I think y'all can handle that because it's gonna be really good, okay? All right, show of hands, who has ever heard of Young Life? Okay, good, wow, all right. Whose life has been impacted by Young Life? All right, look around, okay, yeah. So this organization, which has been around about 75 years, has been extremely successful in reaching young people with this message about how amazing it is to follow Jesus. And one of their rallying cries, or their mottos, I think it's like their Instagram little, uh, what is it called on the Instagram? Bio. Wow, bio, okay, calm down. Um, The bio on Instagram, um, it says, partying with a purpose. I like that, because I like parties, right? And I, I feel good about going to a party that has a reason, like a good reason. And one of the best parties I had the pleasure of attending had a purpose. And it's up to you all to decide whether you think it was a valid purpose to gather. A friend of mine named Ruthie had this vision to host events that would explore and celebrate the mysteries of the Bible. So that was the purpose of them. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is a passage from Genesis 6. It says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. And they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. All right, who, knew, who, who knows what a Nephilim is? Or are? are? No, okay, this is good. This is the purpose that we had this party. Who's, heard, have, you, have you heard, you've never heard of it, Nephilim? Okay, all right, Th- who knows how to pronounce Nephilim? <laughs> I think I'm saying it right, so I'm glad that none of you know how to say it correctly. <laughs> so Ruthie was this mastermind behind one of the greatest ongoing parties in the history of humankind, the Nephilim party. And it, it had a five-year run. Nephilim were giants that existed before the flood. In order to create a party around this theme, uh, what she did was gather a group of friends and we all had to dress and act like giants. Seems like a normal, fun party for 20-somethings to get into, am I right? No, it sounds really weird, because it was really weird. But it was really, really fun and amazing too. Ruthie began by making these tiny invitations and stuffing them into miniature envelopes. She actually called up the postal service to figure out what is the the smallest possible one that they would actually deliver. And with these letters, she birthed the concept behind the Nephilim party. We would dress like our interpretation of giants, so that could be the Jolly Green giant, that could be Goliath, it could be Paul Bunyan, anything that you wanted. And then everything that we ate and drank would have to be mini size, like this. You know, like small slider burgers with some like miniature milkshakes and then tiny tacos. I think it was like a tiny taco bar where you had to like put the beef and lettuce in it. And we had some Cornish hens, all of these miniature things so that when we ate them, it made us feel like we were gigantic in relation to them. So we were all sitting around as giants. And you might be surprised to know that it wasn't just a few of us like a couple weirdos sitting around. It wasn't like you're probably some of you are thinking you guys are just dressed in these elaborate costumes and awkwardly staring at each other. I will have you know that at least a dozen people were there, if not dozens of people. And they came with the best, most creative dishes to fit the theme. I was a bachelor at the time, so I picked up a bag of chips and I just stomped on it a few times and I broke like small little pieces of chips. You couldn't dip it in salsa though, so it was. I also brought a couple friends with me, and they were under the impression, probably because I gave them this impression, that they were just coming to some sort of like fellowship event because they were new to the church, and I was like, yeah, it's going to be a potluck, it's going to be great fun. <laughs> They did not dress up. They were completely bewildered to just see a bunch of Christians gathered to to basically festively celebrate the strangeness of our scriptures. And so it took them quite a long time to come to terms with the fact that we were toasting to obscure Bible verses. In fact, they still mention that, the fact they just could not wrap their head around the fact that we were toasting to these weird verses in the Bible. And I tell you this story to illustrate the truth, that being a Christian is and should be fun. In fact, the Bible often depicts heaven as this grand feast of epic proportions. And so this morning we are reading about the wedding at Cana, the occasion in John's Gospel when Jesus performs his first miracle. And I believe it is no coincidence that God chose a party— as the place to begin Jesus' full-blown ministry. So turn in a Bible or an app to John chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 887. And I will pray as you are finding it. Father, we open up your word right now to um, be taught by you. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would move, that you would illuminate the scriptures for us, that you would make them real for us, that we would learn more about your character, and that we would leave this place changed. It's in your name. Amen. All right, beginning in verse 1, John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, So we've been in this series about the beauty of Jesus for the past two months now. And I think an often overlooked reality about the God we serve is that he is genuinely fun. Seriously, how mind-blowing would it have been to follow around this guy, Jesus? He's walking around town having parties with sinners, that sounds fun, seemingly eating all of the time, also very fun, healing diseases and disorders and then just like kicking some demons' butts for good measure. This is fun stuff. This is actively fun stuff. And this morning's passage illustrates the joy it was to be around Jesus. So we learn that he's at this wedding feast. He is there with his family and friends, and he's, I guess, there just to celebrate a wedding, right? To have some fun. And this isn't some little podunk affair. This is a lavish event hosted by a well-to-do family. The text says that there is a feast, there are several servants, including one who oversees the entire function, and then there's six large stone jars in the house. All of these details indicate a relatively high social and economic status of the hosts. And such hosts would naturally be expected to put on this elaborate celebration in which All of the guests had all the food and wine that they could possibly want. So when the wine ran out, this was no small issue. The seriousness of this makes complete sense to us if we think about it. Imagine for a moment if you are invited to a wedding at Carmel Valley Ranch. You get a fancy invitation in the mail. If it was like ours, it's on like wood. We sent wooden invitations out. you, you learn that there's a ceremony, it's gonna begin at 4 p.m., and then there's a reception to follow. It's a black tie affair also. You gladly accept, because you wanna support the, the couple, and you just wanna have fun. And if you're like me, the day of the event comes, and you've gotta prepare yourself. So you eat this huge breakfast, and then you don't eat lunch, so that you're sufficiently expanded, but then empty at the same time. <laughs> so that you can fit all of the food in the smorgasbord. After the ceremony, you walk over the reception area and you enjoy some delightful little appetizers to whet the appetite, and you're licking your chops as you see the bridal parties in like the first four main tables, one through four, as they're, as they're being served a beef tenderloin with blanc sauce. But then the servers, they, they suddenly stop coming out. And you watch as, in horror as the father of the bride just slumps to the dance stage. And you watch in horror as he makes this shocking announcement. They've run out of food. He apologizes profusely, profusely but the damage is done. He and his family are embarrassed and half of the guests, including you, are hangry. If you don't know what hangry is, there's a definition. If this were to actually happen, then the bride, the groom, and their families would probably be so ashamed that their memory of the wedding day might be ruined. The party might even stop, or at least end early as a train of people leave because they're hungry and they need to go get some dinner. This would be a disaster. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is trying to do some serious damage control in order to avoid a disaster like that. We don't know why, but she takes up the cause of the wedding host and approaches Jesus with this frantic request. Do something quick. They ran out of wine. She obviously knows that there's something special about her son, but Jesus is apprehensive to say the least when he responds to his mother's request with these words. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. For some of us, this is a hard phrase that Jesus speaks to his mother. But Jesus made a habit out of doing the things that he saw the father doing, not what people commanded him to do. He goes on to fulfill his mother's request, but he makes sure to do it out of his own free will. And if you find yourself put off by this comment, Remember that Mary doesn't seem to be troubled by it at all, and so neither should we. Actually, it's kind of amusing the way that she handles it. She's just like, oh, yeah, 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 okay. Servants, just get ready to do whatever he tells you to do. What happens next is barely narrated by John, meaning there's no details about it, really. There's no action performed by Jesus, such as praying to God or touching or speaking to the jars of of water. Jesus gives only a simple command to the servants to fill them to the brim. And these aren't just any old jars. There are six 20 to 30-gallon containers filled with water meant for Jewish rites of purification. So this water would have been used to um, wash containers and cups and perhaps people's hands before the meal. And so just for perspective, this here is a three-gallon water container donated by Mike, right, to student ministries, and we fill this up every Wednesday afternoon with water, okay, just so everyone knows, it's just water in here. Um, And so then we have about 50, actually more than 50 middle schoolers and high schoolers come through the doors on Wednesday, and by the end of the night, I open this up, and I pour out about half of it. So this little container is enough to quench the thirst of 50 ravenous teenagers, and In this story, we've got six huge, um, how many gallons? 30-gallon water jugs. That is a ton of water. And so here comes the fun part. And it's not fun because it's alcohol. In no way is that the point of the story. A lot of people try to make that the point of the story that has nothing to do with it. The significance of the passage and the beauty of Jesus that that it exudes is the fact that Jesus takes people's expectations and he full-blown blasts them to smithereens. This miracle points to the reality that our God constantly goes above and beyond. Who knows what Mary and, and the servants were expecting Jesus to do? But I can only guess that they would have never dreamed that Jesus would take 150 gallons of water and change it in wine in order to come to the rescue. Jesus richly provides for the wedding guests. Now they have in excess, and the catastrophe has been prevented. But I want you to notice something. The amount is not what necessarily excites the master of the feast. He is the first to drink the water turned to wine, and he is shocked by what he tastes. Many of you do not know this about me, and some of you probably might be surprised to learn this. But at one point in my mid-20s, I am confident that I could have taken the test to become a certified sommelier. For those of you who don't know what a sommelier is, it's a wine expert. So I worked in restaurants all through undergrad and grad school and in between, and I realized that wine knowledge actually meant more money in my pocket. And I liked more money in my pocket, and therefore I took an interest in wine. And at one particular restaurant that I worked at, we had a mandatory meeting on Monday afternoons in which we learned about wine, okay? And we got to taste it too. We would do blind tasting, we we would take pop quizzes, and then we would get to create our own descriptions of our wines. I learned how to tell you what year a wine was just by looking at the color. I could tell you what grape was used simply by smelling a glass of it. Sometimes I was right. These meetings were extremely educational. And what was startling about them was not the amount of bottles that we opened up. We would normally open up about two to five bottles. What was crazy was the cost. It was not uncommon for us, the 10 of us, to share about $1,000 worth of wine just at a Monday afternoon meeting. An unfortunate result of this was the fact that my palate actually became more refined and I could actually taste the difference between good wine and bad wine, and good wine's better and more expensive. And we loved the Mondays when we got to open up like the big boys, like the first-growth Bordeaux's and um, some nice white Burgundies or a rare Super Tuscan. The winos know what I'm talking about. On those particular occasions, we would want to drink the most expensive and nuanced wine first while our taste buds were fresh and could appreciate the complexities of the vintage. So in my experience, it makes practical sense in verse 10 when that head servant exclaims, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine." but you have kept the good wine until now. When the master of the feast takes that first sip and excitedly calls over the bridegroom, he is astounded at its quality and knows nothing of the quantity. Wedding festivities could last for days in those times, and surely you would not want to bring out the best towards the end, because it would essentially be wasted on People whose senses were dulled, and that is putting it very nicely. Jesus' glory is revealed not in the power to transform the water into wine, but in the generous provision of superior wine for the wedding feast. His deed calls to mind the Old Testament promises of the feasting and drinking that will characterize the messianic age to come, the age that has arrived with the coming of the Christ, The prophet Amos wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Jesus is marking the beginning of those days that Amos prophesied about. The promised time of salvation has come in the person of Jesus, and it is characterized by feasting in abundance and joy. Jesus is beautiful because he is fun. He loves a good party, but also because he is generous and kind. Look again at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I want to draw your attention to two things. First, this is his first sign. And second, this is the first time that his disciples believed in him. Throughout scripture, signs are often linked with wonders and are indicators of God's action in the world. Whether extraordinary or ordinary, these things are signs because they are not ends in and of themselves. Signs function primarily to point to God's work. The sign in this passage with the plentiful provision of wine could be read in tandem with a passage like John 6, Jesus feeding the 5,000. In each case, Jesus provides a surplus, extra, that sustains life. Jesus is the bread and wine that will never run out, and heaven is the party that never stops. And it is at this occasion that the disciples trust this to be true. And if you personally have not been convinced this morning about the the beauty of Jesus due to his fun-loving and generous nature, then I would offer up another appealing attribute of Jesus found in this particular passage. In order to discover what I'm talking about, we need to ask this question. Who does Jesus change the water to wine for? Who is this miracle for? Yes, his mother has requested his help. Yes, the servants witnessed it, and yes, the guests surely benefited from it. But I would argue that the people who had the most to lose and therefore gained the most from Jesus' miracle are the hosts of the party. Those people hosting the wedding feast and celebration, most assuredly the bridegroom and his family, would have been shamed and embarrassed nearly beyond restoration. Their reputation would have taken a hit such that the story of their failings would have gone on for years in their village and family, if not decades and generations. This was a big deal, an even bigger deal than that hypothetical beef tenderloin scenario that I came up with. Ancient Jewish weddings were more extravagant than what we're used to. And I know that is hard for some of you to believe considering the debt that you're still in from paying for weddings or that you plan to go in with an upcoming nuptials. But in the ancient Near East, the betrothal took place well before the actual marriage and it was considered as binding as the marriage. Many times the betrothed woman would not see her betrothed husband until the marriage ceremony began around a year after the initial agreement. They won't see each other. When the wedding day finally arrived, the bridegroom and companions would march to the bride's house and whisk her away in a procession from her father's house to the house of the bridegroom. And once there, there would be this elaborate ceremony, and afterward, the newly married couple would emerge, and the hoopla would begin in earnest. The doors were actually shut. It would sound like that. The doors would shut, and the feast started with great dancing and festivities lasting several days at the bridegroom's house. All guests were given these fancy garments to wear and the bridegroom and and bride would be treated as royalty, king and queen. They wouldn't be expected to do any work. They would just watch the celebration, drink wine, and even join in the dancing. So as you can see, running out of wine at such a highly anticipated, they had plenty of time to plan for this, and momentous event would have been unforgivable. But that crisis is averted when Jesus, almost in secret, intervenes and eliminates the possibility of any shame being brought upon the family. Jesus' miracle is not only fun and exceedingly generous, it is also kind and protective. I love this about Jesus. He covers our mistakes and makes something wonderful out of our shortcomings. He fills the gaps. His power is made perfect in weakness. We have seen at least three beautiful characteristics of Jesus this morning. He's the life of the party, he takes away our shame, and he goes above and beyond our expectations. I believe that all three of these attributes will be on full display this week. I mean, I think they occur every week, but a little extra during this seven-day period that is the most important in the entire Christian calendar. Holy Week begins today with Palm Sunday. Today, we remember that our God likes to party. Palm Sunday marks the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as people line the roads to just catch a glimpse of the miracle worker and shout his praise. On Good Friday, we will gather to remember the cross And the fact that Jesus bore our sins and shame. He suffered the punishment that we deserve, and then He intervenes on our behalf. On Friday, we will celebrate communion with bread and wine. These two elements that Jesus used to demonstrate the riches that He offers. And finally, next Sunday, we celebrate Easter. We celebrate that the ultimate example of our God far exceeding expectations. In fact, he even constantly tells the disciples to expect it, and they don't expect it, and he still exceeds their expectations because our God puts a death to death and emerged victorious from the grave. Jesus goes above and beyond in order to demonstrate his love for us and to give us eternal life with him. And heaven is going to be a joyous and bountiful feast that eclipses even just the most grandiose hopes that we could come up with. So, as you embark upon this week, I want to encourage you in a few ways. Jesus did not come and do what he did so that you would go on living a life of captivity, he came to release you from your fear, from your worries and the belief that our God is stingy and boring. Jesus liberated you. This is the best news. Have a party. Celebrate the life that you have here and also the life that is to come. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If that isn't beautiful, then I don't know what is. Let's pray. father you are so generous to us you intervene on our behalfs you give us everything that we could possibly need you sustain us and father we ask now that we would be examples of what it looks like to live in the joy of the lord even those who are struggling with difficult circumstances would you by your spirit just give us an extra measure of joy and peace that we would want to be that we would be people that others want to be around and god we ask you especially those who are in need that you would show up and give enough for us to be sustained And now, Father, as we give back to you a portion of what you've so richly given to us, we pray that you would powerfully use this, that you would take it, that you would bless the missionaries, that you would bless these people in this community, and that we would get to see the benefit of the sweet wine pouring down these hills. It's in your name. Amen. Amen.